Thank you for joining us for live paranormal radio. From the paranormal to the unexplained, it all happens here. It all happens here. Looking to enhance your radio experience? Participate in our live video chat 24-7 with our live paranormal radio show hosts and other like-minded people. Live. Paranormal.com, the only interactive social chat room supported by Full Interaction Media. Stop by now and join the fun. Stop by now and join the fun. It's Haunted Playground, right here on the Live Paranormal Radio Network. You can find us at LiveParanormal.com iHeartRadio.com, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Podomatic. The list goes on and on. I'm your host, Sheena Metal. I'm a psychic medium. I'm an interfaith minister. I'm a 27-year talk radio host, and I'm at SheenaMetalSpiritual.com. On this show, we explore things every week that are outside of the confines of the three-dimensional world. So whether you believe in the afterlife or you think you've got a griffin in your backyard, it belongs right here on Haunted Playground. My guest today is a wonderful philanthropist, vegan activist, and we're going to find out today just how spiritual of a guy. Please welcome to the show today um, my very wonderful and dear friend. Um, just waiting for him to call in. Uh, there he is. Probot Gotham is here. How are you, my friend? It's wonderful to have you here. It's so wonderful to be here, Sheena. First, I love that you can be found everywhere. There's like 800 podcast platforms you can be found at. And you can just be found right. all over Los Angeles, Orange County, and the world in, right. in real life and in person. Yeah, if you, actually, if you actually open your window and just scream, hey, Sheena, usually I come. Hey, Sheena. Oh, wait a second. Somebody threw a brick hey. at me. I, I, I think oh, they must know you. Exactly. Oh exactly. Not a fan. Not a fan. So let's let's talk about because I know that once you kind of got thrown onto the show, and I think you weren't quite sure what was going on, but then you asked to come back and do this show now because you've done my raising the vibration show a few times, and we've done a lot of projects together, including I've done your show. Right. So here's my question for you: How did you grow up? And did you grow up spiritual, religious? What what happened when you were? What was your first sort of introduction to spirituality in your life? Right. So I grew up in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, to be exact. Uh-huh. From two Indian parents from India. So I'm an Oklahoma Indian, mm-hmm. but the other kind of Indian from India. And exactly. No no trail of tears for you. No. Uh, it, when what's interesting, so my mom was then, is now, will be forever devoutly Hindu. So every Monday she would fast. Uh, when she broke her full fast, it was to drink juice. But that's the only, like, that's the only way she would deviate. But she used to do full fast with, like, no nutrients, right? I think she would do water only for years and years while we okay. grew up. She had the incense, you know, that she'd light and to, do, to pray to all the gods. And all of, I'm one of four kids, in every kid's room, there's the deity images. So she'd knock on her door, come in, and the incense would, would be there. She did, like, fruit offerings for the gods. And I was like, that's good fruit. Can, can you feed your children with some of that stuff? But, so, so that was our upbringing. And I think my parents got a really good deal on a house. So they, they would let this white woman that's the realtor take us to a Baptist church. And mind you, like my mom would not trust us with our friends, with our friends' parents. So we were never allowed to do sleepovers. But yet this random white woman took us every Sunday to church. So we were raised from a Hindu mom going to a Baptist church. And I would say I probably did that from like age maybe six to 12. And then, you know, my siblings and I, you know, sort of the regular church world just was not really working for us. And then we stopped going to church. And, and yeah, so that's a lot of it. It's like that. So I would say the introduction of spirituality, right, is my mom was just super spiritual. And then sort of the standard Christian, you know, 
spirituality. Um, and, re, and it's in Oklahoma, so you can't get any more Bible Belt in Oklahoma. That's the buckle. Of course, right, of course. So where did you – how did you feel about Hinduism growing up? I thought it was interesting, but I think I saw it more as cultural, right? Like my introduction to, to it was through an Indian mom. I mean, the only time we would go to any kind of Hindu temple would be if somebody died. So there's kind of a whole, like, ritual around death where, you know, you go and you're with the family. You know, probably no different than churches, synagogues, mosques, right? So, so we just had very little interaction. And I do remember when I was in college seeing, seeing Hare Krishnas, like, these super white people knew more about India and you know, Hinduism and Buddhism than I ever knew. So I was always amazed that these people knew so much about that culture. But I just didn't, honestly, I didn't know a lot. Like, we never read the Bhagavad Gita. My mom, you know, may tell us stories here and there, but they were like, you know, they were like, watch like a movie or a cartoon. Like, we're like, oh, that's interesting, but we don't think any of that's real. So, you know, back back to our Saturday morning cartoons. Right, 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 right. And I think that's, that, that, is, that happens sometimes, especially with children of immigrants, where um, there's so much. The parents are trying to keep the cultural aspects of the upbringing because they want to make sure their culture gets carried into the kids' lives who are now becoming, growing up in a different country and there's a different culture all around them, that sometimes the spiritual part of that gets lost and it becomes more about the cultural part. And it sounds like that's what it was like with you. Now, did you grow up vegetarian-vegan? Because I know a lot of Indian folks are vegetarian. Right. So my mom has always been vegetarian, but we were not. And, like, she would, you know, make meat. Like, she would make sandwiches, burgers, hot dogs, whatever. And that, some of it might have been just her trying to assimilate the kids. And I think by middle school I became vegetarian and then vegan by college. But even though I came from a mom that's vegetarian, my father, you know, ate meat, ate everything. Um, So we saw it, and we'd obviously have some vegetarian meals, right? And a lot of Indian food is vegetarian anyway. Uh, But there'd be a lot of, you know, ghee, you know, butter. So we would get dairy, you know, chai had dairy. Um, So there really wasn't a lot of talk of, like, cows are sacred, any of that. You know, it was it was kind of like, you know, religion was my mom's thing, and we saw it as that, and then we all just did our own thing. And, and then I would see my aunt, and I had one super religious aunt that had a whole little room with a shrine, and she's like the least friendly aunt of all our aunts. And I remember thinking, like, if religion makes her nicer, this is a good thing, because she needs a lot of niceness left. Like, like she just, there was no warm and friendly to her. Uh, but the other aunts that were less religious were just great, you know, and the uncles were great. So, so yeah, it was really interesting because those were really the only two Hindu people I was really, like, devoutly Hindu people I was ever exposed to was my mom and my aunt. Right. I, I think Hinduism is interesting. I've studied a little bit of everything, not everything, but all of the majors, I think, for um, when I started my RaisingTheVibration.org nonprofit peace, love, kindness, unity movement, it's a spiritual movement. And I thought, well, you know, it's so important not just to preach to your own choir. I need to know about other folks and what their religions are about. Um, the thing I think is interesting about Hinduism is it, it almost reminds me in a way of the polytheistic ancient Celtic, pre-Christian Celtic religion, because I'm of Irish descent, and it reminds mm-hmm. me of Catholic saints. Like there's there's different deities and sub deities, right? And everybody takes care of something. Everybody's responsible right. for something. And I think that I, I am right now as we speak. Um, you know, I wear that sacred charm necklace around my neck. And um, last year, for my birthday, I added to that necklace uh, Ganesh because oh, wow. I, I love Ganesh. I love elephants. I work a lot in my work with Ganesh. I love the idea of somebody just being in charge of removing obstacles. 
I mean, how amazing would our lives be if we could just remove our obstacles? So um, uh, I love Hinduism because I love the fact that there's like a deity for everything. Um, in the same way that I love Catholic saints, in the same way that I love my own pagan Irish heritage. Um, so I think there's such beautiful things about every religion, and I think as you grow up, maybe you pick and choose the things that you like from your upbringing, from things you discover, and then you, you know, move forward with your own spiritual palate. So have you developed a palate? I mean, what is your spirituality now? How do you feel about spirituality in general? Yeah, you know, I've had an interesting, I think, journey with it, because certainly during the college years, you know, when the Mormon missionaries came and knocked on the door, I was like, oh, I got questions. And so I would keep meeting with them. And there were two sisters, um, you know, or they're called sisters. They weren't actual biological sisters. And one of them went on to BYU, and Summer sent me this really nice letter. It's in 1996. And she said she appreciated meeting somebody who wasn't Mormon, who helped her think about diversity and how, you know, she craves diversity in her life. So, um so that, and then also just, you know, meeting people that were religious in different denominations. And I think, you know, organized religion is an interesting thing because we both have Martin Luther King Jr., who's a minister, right, Mother Teresa, who, you know, these amazing priests that have done wonderful work, right, to fight for social justice issues, like all throughout, you know, Central South America. And then you have, you know, nations that go to war in the name of their religion. So I've always said, like, religion is this amazing tool for good and it can also be this tool for, like, you know, atrocity. So it's that of thing course. of just seeing that, like, like many tools, right? Like people that are, that are super charismatic are, like, they can really broker a lot of good things. They can bring people together, you know, have everybody work together. They can also be narcissists that, like, destroy the world because part of the charisma uh-huh. might be tied to their own, you know, edifying their own ego. So, so for me, I think I have a lot of um, – I look at really – like, I'm a big – if somebody said, like, who's my greatest spiritual teacher, I used to always say it's Chris Rock because he always has wisdom in his comedy. But next to Chris Rock, it's Joseph Campbell, who I feel like he – looked at all the religions and he just had such a clarity about the work he did where it's like, you know, if you look at the story of Moses, you look at the story of, of Krishna, like we don't have to take these stories to be literal. Like what's the lesson to be learned, right? Noah's Ark, you don't need to have two of every animal. It's how do you, how do you continue humanity? What, what, what are the pieces we can do and how can we look at everyone being like an integral part of our growth? So I think I've always had a very, like, a practical, you know, I don't even know if I'd say sensible, logical. I just think it's a, like, okay, you know, because one of my big criticisms of religion for years, and will probably will always be, is that I think too many people treat religion as a genie in a bottle. And it's like, well, I need mm-hmm. this. Like, I need to be, I need this relationship to work. I need I want this house that I made an offer on, so God will provide this for me because I deserve this. And, and what I've certainly seen, I think it's just a beautiful place to be, is when people of faith say, God, give me wisdom to get through this situation, whatever that will be. Like, I like that because it's such a more loving, less self-absorbed way to do things and say, like, oh, I'd really like this to happen, but if it's not the best thing for me or for the world or for my family, then whatever will be will be. But I'm not fixated on getting this thing that I want for my needs. Like, and I just think that's – because just like, I've just seen it so many times where people are like, you know, I'm praying to get all green lights so I can go to this dinner or this meeting with this person. It's like you should have left 30 minutes earlier. Like this is not – this, this is not supposed to work for you to make up for you not doing what you should have done. And I think when people right. use faith for that, I think it's such a detrimental thing, both in their personal development, but also in their them trying to get other people to adopt their faith, where it's just so much more beautiful to me when people, especially, I mean, I see it all the time. You know, like I work with a lot of people 
you know, not in any professional way, but like friends or family or friends of friends who when they're going through loss, right? I've known a lot of people that have gone through that a parent that had cancer, they're dealing with a loss or a loved one has recently died. And like in that time, and you know this, just because you're a caring person, but also as an interfaith minister, that they don't, if somebody says their mom has cancer, the worst thing you can say to them is she'll be okay. Like, don't worry. Like we're going to pray for her. She'll be healed. Because those are words that make the person feel better that says it. But we have no belief that they'll be okay. Like people that go for minor surgery die all the time, right? People that have cancer die all the time. So I always say to people, I'm here for you no matter what happens. And what what do you need that I can help you with? You need access to a doctor. Like I think you've met Dr. Kian Vu, who's this amazing, you know, interventional radiologist. Let me put you in touch with Dr. Vu. Are you looking to alternative, you know, resources as my friend chef rashid right he'll give you all the do you need a wiccan witch wiccan witch of the west that'll give you some of the other like naturopathic holistic stuff tell me what will you and your mom or you and the person need and i'm going to go to my friends and have them consult with you help you for free help you find what you need and then but every step of the way i'll always be here for you and you know we're going to root for the best and i see so often People will just say to somebody, don't worry, it's all going to be okay because we're praying for this person, and they're going to be fine. And I would say because that makes them feel better, but when the person passes, where are they? Are they invested in if it doesn't, if it isn't fine, right? So that's one of my big critiques, that those false promises, I think, don't help anybody. It really is, um, you know, not fair for the people. So, and. And I have always tried to never do that. And I'm sure you agree to that. Absolutely. I always tell people all will be well. Yeah. But that's not a promise the person's going to live. It's that no matter what happens, all will be well. All will be right. well for them and all will be well for you. But the design may not be for them to live. I don't say that part. Because right. no one needs to hear they're probably not going to live. You know, and you know why people come to me, clients, and they want, like, an expiration date. Like, what day is mom going to die? Right. And I always say, spirit does not give me expiration dates. Because if you think someone's going to die on November 16th, 2024, then you are going to live your life different. You're going to treat them different. They're going to leave their life different. And at any time, spirit can change the timeline. Right. So you're not supposed to know when you're going to die because you're supposed to live for today. The lesson is to live for today. The lesson is to be living for right now, not just be sitting around waiting to die. You know, I had this, my father was a last Catholic, and his mother, like, literally went to Mass, like, every single day. And wow. she was one of those who was kind of just waiting to die, right? She was on the earth for as long as she had to be, but it was all about when is God going to take me to heaven, like her entire life. Well, this is a teaching planet. We're here to learn. We're here to grow. And sometimes you die and go home and spirit's like, okay, it's been 45 minutes and you're going back. We're not supposed to just live to die because we're here to, like, have this human experience to grow, to overcome obstacles, to use our gifts, and to become more educated and more enlightened. So if you're just sitting around waiting to die so you can go to heaven, you're completely missing the lesson, you know? Right. And I think, too, right, we know this from our lives, right? I remember going to your Raising the Vibration, Raising the Vibration event, and the guy that was your camera person, right, like he, I believe he passed from heart attacks, like, you just, we don't know when it's going to happen. So I would say treat people, live as if they're going to die after the conversation you have with them. So be nice to them, be loving, and whatever. And some people are like, well, I wish I would have gone to see them then if I knew they were going to pass a month later. But if you didn't feel like you were going to go, then don't go. And, and like, I just kind of live in the space of you hope that you're – the way you interact with people is how you would interact if you knew they're gone tomorrow or in 10 years. And if you're going to make time for people and be present for them, make time and be present. 
then obviously, right, if you do know they're, they're, they have a terminal, you know, terminal illness, that there is a shorter time, then certainly go make time for them then. But I just kind of think kind of as a rule, you know, we're in Los Angeles. If you don't want to drive across town and the person invites you to go across town, then do a phone call with them. Like the, the act of being physically present is not necessary. And if you get there and you're exhausted and you're not in a good mood, then that interaction is not going to be what we want it to be. And we all have phones. We can all text. We can all Zoom, Skype. So make time for the people that uplift you and that you're excited to be around. And, like, I think of you and I, right, through a lot through the pandemic, like, we haven't seen each other, but we've still had texts. You know, we've had some calls. Like, people can still communicate with people that are in their life. And then, obviously, coming out of that time, we're going to see each other, you know, hopefully back to 2019 and pre-2019 days. But I don't feel like, you know, like I, I don't feel like we step up more, step up less for people. We just are who we are. And if something happens, then, then you know, that's the situation where you definitely are going to check in on people because they've gone through a tragedy. So I think for me so much of my kind of view of spirituality is based around, you know, how do we, how are we towards our neighbor and who is our neighbor, right? Like, what does it mean to be your brother's keeper? Like that whole thing of, um, you know, if if somebody goes through a breakup, somebody is upset. Like, you know, I've, in the last maybe two months, I've had three friends that were in serious car accidents. So, you know, once that happens, then you call them, you check on them, you make sure they're doing okay, you know, like that's, there's just, to me, there's nothing, there's no meeting I'm going to be at. There's nothing more important I'm doing than to check on those people. And so for me, that's my spiritual practice is to be present for people in general. And certainly when they're going through something, be, you know, extra present. But I hope that I'm present all the time anyway. Because a lot of times, as we both know, especially in the last three years, People are going through depression, they're suicidal, and they're not announcing that. They're not telling us. And a lot of times they're extra isolated. So all we can do is be as loving and as nurturing as we can be. So, you know, I, I've always said to people, you know, I know you're an interfaith minister, right? In a different life I would have been a minister because I like the whole practice of checking on people. You know, I have a good friend who his former girlfriend committed suicide and I want to say 20, 2012. And, and I said to everyone, we're all dating him for the next two weeks. Treat him like it's somebody you're dating. Like, I was, I was like, we're going to text him every day. And I said to our group of friends, text him, check on him, take him to dinner. And we were, we were friends. We weren't close friends. We were acquaintance friends. And I think it meant a lot, a lot to him to know that, I was going to check on him, and I said to him, you are allowed to have days to buy yourself if you want them, but no, I'm going to keep texting you. If you don't text me back, I'm still going to text you. And then, you know, for the next whatever it was, month, for the next two weeks I texted a lot. For the next month I checked on him. But then that year around the holiday season I checked him again because that's when, as we both know, people go through a lot of depression around Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. And, you know, he discovered her after she had committed suicide. So that's the kind of trauma I don't know and hope I never experience, you know. So, But I feel like if we, just to be present with people is so, so important. And, and you know, I have friends who are very, you know, they have a, you know, they're very critical. They have a lot of animosity towards organized religion. And I said to someone recently, if somebody's a drug addict, alcoholic, and organized religion will get them out of that, that's a step up. I still think there's limitations on organized religion because it's a system that I think is sort of, it's my team or your team. Are you a Dodgers fan? Are you a New York Giants fan? Are you a Lakers fan? Those are three different sports. But, like, they start deciding, are you on the team? I'm like, you and I, and we're on a team of we just want to see people have better lives. And whether that's through organized religion, through that spirituality, whether it's no religion, whether it's their own religion that they make up as they go along, I don't, I really don't care what it is. I just want a world of more people that are loving, caring, nurturing, and better people. So I've really, 
I think I went from being really critical of religion in my early 20s to understanding it has a role just like the political stuff. The political systems have a role. for, And we see it all the time. People get really locked into being their Democrat or their Republican. And if you're on the other side with a different – if you have an R and you're, and you're a D, you hate the R's. If you're the other way, you're an R and they're a D, you hate them. It's like, I don't hate either of you. I just hope you all can work yeah. together on trying to make our world better. And, like, I've said so often in the I, last year to people, th- from 1996 until 2020, there was a school shooting on average once a month. It took a global pandemic for kids to not be shot and killed. And I said, I don't care right. if people believe everybody should have a gun or there should be gun control and nobody has a gun. You guys all figure that out. Work with me to figure out how we can stop getting children from being killed. Like, let's work on that. If it means we need 80 guards surrounding every school, let's budget 80 guards to be at every school. But let's save these kids. Like, you know, I'm obsessed with solutions, and I think everybody can be part of the solution process. So, And I think that's how – that's my my view of – of religion and faith it's that the ones that want to be at the table to be part of a solution i can't have enough of those people the ones who are you got to be on our team or we're not going to work with you then i have very little patience for those people like like go do your mission work hopefully you're helping people in poverty or in addiction to get out of that but beyond that i don't i don't have a lot of excitement to work with those people but luckily, I think the majority of people are the first category that really, you know, if they're Christian, but you're Muslim or Jewish or agnostic or atheist or, you know, universalist, but you're doing good, they still appreciate you're doing good. So, you know, I think it's just beautiful yeah. when people want to be part of that. So, Am I going to be agree. a universalist minister what? soon? I think you've converted me, Sheena. You sure talk like a minister, my friend. It's funny because I think the same thing. I never thought I wanted to be a minister. But then as soon as I became a minister, I couldn't imagine that I hadn't been a minister the whole time. So my friend Steve Peters, Reverend Steve Peters, is the oldest living human being with AIDS. So he, of all people that got AIDS, he lived. He was in the first drug trial prior to AZT. And I believe he was the only one that survived that drug trial. He became paralyzed. He was blind. All his hair fell out. All that stuff has corrected itself, but he lived. So he, um, he as a matter of fact, he, most recently, his, his character was portrayed in the Eyes of Tammy Faye movie with Jessica Chastain because Tammy Faye Baker actually interviewed him for PTL. He was the first gay person that had ever been on PTL and she took a lot of flack for it and some people believe the reason that Jimmy Swaggart came and took PTL down was because of that because I said Jimmy wow. Swaggart and I'm not sure that's what was because of um, because she had put a gay person on the network so um, forgive me if I got that wrong it wasn't Jimmy Swaggart I don't know I'll, I'll figure it out so, um, we apologize to Jimmy Swaggart, but I'm sure he's done something else that we would be happy with. So we apologize for this, Jimmy, but we have other things. Yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out, and I'll get it right. Um, so anyway, um, he was a minister at MCC, and I secretly, when I became ordained, which was a message for me from Spirit, I wanted to be a minister at MCC. And I thought, well, that's never going to happen because I'm a baby minister, no one's got, had just gotten, I got ordained from a guy I met at the improv who heard me talk about the Raising the Vibration movement before it was even a nonprofit product on the stage at the improv and came up to me afterwards and said, if you're looking to get ordained, I'll do it. I run American Trinity University. So that's how I got ordained. So I just figured Raising the Vibration was going to be my ministry. But I secretly always wanted to be at Founders because I love the message of the queer community coming together and saying to people, if you've been kicked out of your churches, come here and here's your home. I just thought that was a very Christ-like, Buddha-like, Krishna-like message, and I really, really loved it. So the first Raising the Vibration gathering that I ever did 
my friend Hersha was there. Hersha had been on the Little House on the Prairie show and was friends with Allison Arngram, who was on that show, who I met Steve through. And she texted me right after I got done doing that gathering, and she said, you need to be a minister at Founders MCC. I'm going to send Steve Peters a message. So she did. She sent him an email. Steve sends me an email, right? And we're already friends, and he's been on my show a bunch. And he says, honey, I would love to help you, but I'm retired. But we have a brand-new senior pastor, Keith Mazingo. Why don't I bring him on your radio show and introduce you? And so we met, and Keith and I hit it off. He offered to take me to lunch at Jerry's Famous Deli, rest in peace. Jerry's Famous Deli, not Keith. He's alive yeah. as well. And he asked yeah. me if I wanted to come on board as an interfaith pastor and do a service for them. So there, there is a magic to community, right? There is a magic to saying yes. If it hadn't been for Steve, I wouldn't be here. If it, well, first of all, if it hadn't been for Keith, I wouldn't be here. If it hadn't been for Steve, I wouldn't be here. If it hadn't been for Hersha, I wouldn't be here. If Steve hadn't lived, I wouldn't been here. So we're at a birthday party. So I, I got the gig, but I had yet done my first service. I had not done one. And I'm sitting at a long table because it's Allison's husband's birthday party. We're at this Middle Eastern restaurant. And Steve and I just happened to be next to each other at the far end of the table. And I said, you know what? I have this service, and it's starting in two weeks. I have no idea what I'm going to say. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I've only been a minister for a year and some. Steve, of course, had been a minister since, like, 1981. And I said, "Um, I mean, is anybody going to take me serious as a minister? And Steve said, but, honey, haven't – hasn't isn't everything you've done up to this point really been your ministry? Haven't you been a minister all along and you're just now calling yourself one? And I thought about it, Probot, and it's true, right? Every, I had always been a minister. I just never called myself one. And I yeah. think that's the same thing with you, friend. I think that's the same thing with you. That, no, you're right. I, I, mean, I, mean, it's, I think it's in us, right? There's something about wanting justice and wanting wanting the underdog taken care of. Um, yeah. You know, you know what I love about our modern society, Sheena. A lot of things. One is we can real time fact check. Jimmy Swaggart admitted to bringing down the bakers. So you were correct. For all the listeners out there, oh. we can go back to um, I was uh, not- criticizing Jimmy no, Swaggart. Not- it's okay. Was but the thing Swagger, is, but is Jimmy Swagger? But is Jimmy Swagger also the one that was Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin? Because he was also the bad guy in the Great Balls of Fire movie, and that's why I thought maybe I'd mix two stories up. <laughs> I don't know if he's related or not. That's a whole other thing to find. But he later had his own scandal and he just stepped down. But I have a great story about the Bakers. So, like in two thousand and. One, I spent a lot of time helping this church in downtown L.A. called um, the Dream Center, and their whole mission was to help inner cities. And I remember, like, you know, the main pastor would help, and Jim Baker, at some point along the time, had said he never wants to be involved with money again, and he wanted to just help inner city people. And he was like, I, I started PPO to want to help people, then the money came in, and I got caught into it all. But moving forward, I only want to help the people that are most in need. And I love a redemption story. I And, you know, obviously there's cynical people are like, oh, this is just a ploy for him to get back in the spotlight, to, like, you know, uh, steal money from people. But I said, once you've done something, you've been publicly outed, you went to prison for it, you've thought about it, maybe you do go back to who you were before and – and I just remember thinking, like, I want to believe that Jim Baker is going to do everything that he wants to do. And as far as I know, you know, he's been doing inner city work for 20-something years. So I, I think that's great, you know, helping – because with, with the Dream Center, what they were doing is they would go into inner cities. They had a program called Adopt-A-Block where they would sweep – they'd bring in brooms. They'd sweep up all the trash, and they'd go door-to-door and ask each family, what, what do you need – that we can provide you. They'd bring food, they'd bring diapers. 
And I remember them saying what families want a lot of are diapers for their children and, and pet food for their animals because they want to make sure their animals are taken care of. And, and they were so appreciative these people were coming in to try to beautify their neighborhoods. And I was like, that's the role of what churches should do. And I've also said for years, churches are often these beautiful buildings that are used Wednesday and Sunday. Like, why is it not used as a community center? You know, and there have been, we obviously know some great, I think All Saints Church in, in Pasadena, there's a Venice Church, that they do community events. They bring in, you know, social justice people to talk about issues. And it's like that's a beautiful use of those wonderful buildings. But to use a building two days a week, it just seems like such an underutilization of what the power of being a center for change can be. So it's, yeah, yeah I think I'll always exactly. look at religion as, as a tool for change for the better when used properly. Yeah. And the people that get it really get it. So I did my fact-checking. Jimmy Swaggart was yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin. And so before Ooh. he took down the Bears in the 50s, he was the cousin of the very famous country star, piano player, rock, rock piano player, Jerry Lee Lewis. And he tried to bring down rock music. He was against Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and literally, because he was related to Jerry Lee Lewis, he tried to, like, kind of kill his career. So he was just somebody who basically liked to destroy things. I mean, that happens, right? That's a, that's right. a thing. I don't I don't. God, none of the messages I've ever received of spirit were like, go destroy this person. Like, that's not right. something that you really get from God. I know a lot of people focus on some of the New Testament, Old Testament things. There's a lot of right. stuff in the Old Testament, God smoting away. But, um, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it's sad that Jim Baker got pulled into the money and power side of it all. But Tammy Faye, the things that she discussed on the show, um, you know, gay people, uh, penis pumps for men with erectile dysfunction, you know, different cooking. I mean, all these different things that she really made it not just about hitting that religious message over and over again, but really about all-around community. And I, I agree with you about a church being used. My goal in life, the end of my life goal, is to create a spiritual center in L.A. and to create a spiritual center at the beach down here in Huntington, an hour south of L.A., where I grew up, where I am right now, and create, you know, Angel City Spiritual Center, because Los Angeles is the city of angels, and Surf City mm -hmm. Spiritual Center, and have a place that is a teaching center, a place where you can go see psychics, healers, Reiki people, massage therapists, sound healing people, where there is a store where you can purchase crystals and books and whatever you need, and then a church where I can throw church and also when I'm not throwing church that can be used for music events, theater events, comedy events. So it sort of becomes this all-around spiritual and cultural hub. And to me, that's what church is. To me, when I do a play, that's church. When I perform with my band, that's church. When I'm throwing church, that's church. Everything is church, I think. And yeah. so... Yeah, I love, like, uh, the first time I ever did the vagina monologues, it was at a Unitarian church in Manhattan. So yeah. um, my introduction to that was church. That's so beautiful, and I totally agree. I, I can see it, like, while you're describing it, and just what that would mean for Los Angeles, right? Like a cultural – because we're in a town of – there's improv here, there's comedy, there's whatever, but the idea of being around a group of people – who are right. about uplifting. They're not competitive. They're like the idea of go create a really great thing. And here's a place to showcase that great thing. And then, Hey, mm -hmm. sell tickets. You make some money, give some of the money to whatever the cause is that you believe in and help yep. us keep the lights on, but let's just keep this going where, and I've also said to people, yeah. it's, it's the, I want the other five days used. But I also want it to be open 24 hours a day. Like the idea of somebody being able to drop in at three in the morning 
to a place where there's people, you know, practicing for the play or singing or just, or even if it's not in person, right, to be able to stream it. But I just always feel like, especially when people are dealing with addiction issues, just to know there's somewhere where there's people that genuinely care about you and it's a place to be at where everyone there views you as a real human being. Because you know, I have a good friend who she's in New York, and she says to me all the time, like, when we stop treating somebody who's homeless as a human being and we don't – and when people don't talk to them when they ask for money, when people don't want to sit by them on a train, it's like once you lose the humanness of someone – and they're used to that throughout the day, you're changing their psychological way to be. So whereas if they have somebody talk to them, a year, maybe three, four years ago, I'm on a plane, the, the, I don't even know the terms anymore, flight attendant, steward, uh, person on the plane, I think steward is they're called, and, and he comes by and they ask, you know, what would you like to drink? And I said, but as he's coming by, he said, I said, oh, how are you doing today? And he said, good. Uh, thank you. You know, nobody ever asked me that. And I said, nobody asked you that? And he said, yeah. And I said, you just ask them what they want to drink, they tell you, but they don't ask you how you're doing, they don't talk to you. He's like, no. And then we have this bonding moment, and I've talked to other flight attendants, and it's the same thing. Like, we start treating people like robots. And some people say, like, oh, well, they don't have time for a long conversation. But, you know, I recently learned that a flight attendant can be in the air, I think it's 14 hours. So San Francisco to L.A., L.A. to, let's say, Miami, and then back in a day. And that's such a long day to be around humans. And no matter how much you and I like people, that's, we know when you're around people, they give you energy. But there's also a time where we need quiet and our own nourishment and just are calm and for them to be in a life of giving all the time, serving to people. And so I always try to make a point to like really ask them where they're from and, you know, have a minute conversation with them and you just see how much they light up because they are humans that have families or, you know, so much of their life is being away from their families. So the rest of us have a better experience on a plane. And I remember I was flying from Los Angeles to Austin in April. And, you know, it was like a four-hour delay for the plane to come because it took a while to go from, come from Northern California to Los Angeles. And, you know, nobody's happy waiting for the plane. That's now four hours late. And I said to the, the lady, I said, you know, like, we're, you know, where does your day end? Does it end in Austin or Los Angeles? She said, neither. It ends in, I think it's San Francisco. She's going to go to Austin and turn around and go all the way back. And then one flight attendant said to me, we, I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Because based on where the plane stops, if there's more delays, you know, once, it, once they think it'll be over 14 hours, then they're not allowed to fly. So if, you know, they're done 10 and the next flight is going to take five hours, then they can't do that next, run, that next leg of the flight. So they, and I just thought, like, what a different life of not knowing where you're going to be tonight. But also just the people around you kind of treating you like a robot. And it just just kind of put me in a place of, like, how can I be more present for people? And one of the things I've done in the last year is I always have snack bars with me uh, when I get into lifts. And I always offer them to the drivers. And drivers will say, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Then at the end, they'll be like, oh, thank you. And But, because, again, lift allows me to get from place to place in Los Angeles so much quicker than buses and trains did for so long, right? So, right. and these people are not getting bathroom breaks. I mean, they're just rushed, rushed, rushed. It beeps to let them know the next ride is coming and just having and learning about their lives. And, and again, I tell people all the time, like, you don't have to talk to them for their whole ride. You can have them for five minutes at the beginning, two minutes at the end, but like acknowledge humans as humans because, if you want a robot experience, like you have to understand what that means is we start treating people like robots, you're contributing to them feeling disconnected. So I always make a point if I'm on the phone at a store or at a restaurant or wherever, is be off the phone when you talk to the cashier 
you know, even if you're running in to pick up an order to go, like don't be on the phone and like be present with that person for the the two-minute interaction you're going to have. Because how different it is it for us when somebody's present with us versus not being present. So being present is the thing I'm obsessed with. I think it's so important. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And um, uh, it's it's just nice. You know, my friend told me a trick, one of my best friends, Kelly, yeah. when you go and you fly, um, you should always bring a little box of candy for the flight attendant. It's like it takes nothing. You pick up one of those little tiny boxes of seeds candy and you give it to the flight attendant so they all get a piece. Because nobody yeah. ever does anything nice. And... They're so thankful for that. Yeah. And it's so no, important I, I love that, that you do when you say, I call everyone, like, sweetheart. I call everybody honey. You know, I always, I'd always need a seed extender because I'm a bigger girl. I'm admitting this on the air. And my, yeah. uh, my, my weight is all at my stomach. So I always need – it's better than it was. I almost don't need one now, but still a little bit of one. So I always kind of make a joke out of it, like, I need a seed extender because, you know, look at this, but it's getting better. And then they laugh, and then I think they know I'm like a real person. Or when I was traveling and I was on the cane, you remember when I broke my, uh, when I pulled the, uh, uh, tore my tendons and doing that musical, yeah. and I was on a cane. And uh, I would just make jokes about the cane because I have to eventually take the cane and put it in the overhead. And I would make silly jokes about it, like, guess who fell off the stage? I mean, I think it's so easy to, like, lighten someone's load. It's, my mom yeah. always say it's just to be nice, and I think that's true. It's, it's just as easy to lighten the load as it is to um, make people feel threatened or burdened or uncomfortable. It's just as easy to put everybody at ease, I think. Yeah, and you think of it when you're going to put your cane up, right? If somebody says, oh, I can do that for you. Like, what does that make you feel like if they're being nice? And and it's the same thing of, like, just if you see someone with three bags in their hand and they're going to the door, walk over and hold the door open for them. Like, it takes two seconds. Uh, the other day when I was getting into an elevator in the building that I live at, you know, you walk in and you, you can hear the front door that somebody just got in the building. And I thought I could hit my floor, go up, and now they're going to wait for three minutes. And I held the door open, and the, the woman, like, you know, kind of walked over, and I said, I'm sorry for giving you an extra workout, but I thought you'd rather come in now than wait three minutes. She's like, oh, my gosh, I so appreciate that you, like, held the door open for me. And I thought, it's going to take me ten extra seconds to get to my apartment. But in exchange, yeah. I know one of my neighbors who's a real human being we got to have this moment of interaction, and, you know, it's, I just always look at I, – we live in a world where we don't know our neighbors, we don't know people, that if a tragedy, you know, happens in our area, to think like, oh, I met that person, or oh, I, had, I at least had two conversations, right? We don't have to be everybody's best friend, but pleasant with people as often as we're able to be that way. And hopefully we're able to be that way, you know, more and more and more of the time. And one of my favorite things I've done this in college is ask waiters and waitresses at restaurants, like, you know, before in LA, obviously everyone, and we know everyone's in the entertainment industry, but, but even when I, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, where I grew up, it's like, Oh, well, what are you, they're like, I'm in school. What are you in school for? Like, whatever it is, like, oh, is that your dream career? And say, no, like, I want to be a photographer, but, you know, that's just my major to be in whatever, you know, accounting. But I really want to be a photographer. I'm like, and then I used to always take post-its and leave notes for people. And I would leave a note that would say, like, uh, keep, please keep taking the best pictures you can take. And it wasn't to give my number to the cute waitress. It, I wouldn't even leave them my phone number. Yeah, I just was like, I want to write something nice in affirming because even if they throw it away 10 seconds later if you have a good interaction with them because they're they're the people that are helping bring your food out and they're the people helping you know what to order and they're like they're part of the process with you i mean i always think all of the people like we're at a dinner table and everybody the chef the cooks the dishwasher the waitress waiter 
the host, they're all part of my dining experience. And even if they're not sitting at the table with me, they're still a valuable part of that evening being delightful. So well, but beyond that, just be nice to them. So I agree. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You are lovely, my friend. We are totally out of time. Where can people find you online? And let's do this again soon because you have so many good messages for the world, my future minister friend. Why, thank you, my dear friend Sheena Metal. Um, you can find me on positivetelevision.org, which is my company to raise, you know, awareness about all the good being done with all the charitable stuff. Um, and and that's the best place to find me. And thank you again, Sheena, for what you do. And I am so excited to see you create your your angels and your Surfside um, beautiful centers that are going to raise the vibration. I want you to be a part of everything I do, my friend. I want you to be a part of everything I do. I'm your first protester, always, Sheena. I'll be outside nice. of the sign. So, so love you so much, and thank you again. I love you too, my friend. He's my stalker and my friend. Um, and also my adversary. I don't know what that was about. But as he wants to heckle me, that's what's good. Uh, if you miss any of those links, SheenaMetalSpiritual.com, SheenaMetalSpiritual.com for all your psychic and spiritual needs and to learn more about me, uh, entertainment and spiritual communities, me and my. Um, and find me everywhere on social media at SheenaMetal. Till I see you next Wednesday at 5 o'clock Pacific time, seek peace. Live in love, lead with kindness, embrace unity, always raise your vibration, and remember that you are loved and you are loved. I'm Sheena Metal. This is Haunted Playground, liveparanormal.com, iheartradio.com. I'll see you next week. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.